passion follows mastery. Passion follows service. It grows with competency over time because that's how God created us. God created to serve us. We create to serve other people. When you understand work like that, man, you're fired up and you want to do as much good work as you can for the good of others. Hey friends, back with another exciting episode of the Train Podcast. I have a guest that I interviewed last year and was originally keeping this as just a LinkedIn Live exclusive. However, this guest is an author and they're about to launch a new book called Redeeming Your Time. Well, I've had the opportunity to read a pre-released version of the book and it's amazing. So I wanted to hop on and let you know about it because the book launches October 19th. So sorry if you're listening to this podcast after that date, but if you are listening before, go and grab a pre-order of the book because you can then go to Jordan's website and it's all in the show notes to get yourself entered into the sweepstakes to win a trip to Israel or get the cash value prize. So yeah, I couldn't not release this episode, get it to you and make sure you knew about this awesome opportunity to win a trip to Israel. I've been there, you need to go, it's amazing, full glory, just do it. I'm also delighted to mention our sponsor for the season, Peninsula Canada, and my appreciation for the HR profession is ever growing. I've found in Peninsula's team a group of really trustworthy and current professionals. They offer 24-7 advice, they have their own software, and can help you with any outsourced HR needs that you probably have. I highly recommend you schedule a call with them and give them the code CULTURE for the full red carpet royal treatment. Check the show notes for more info on them. And without further delay, here's our episode with Jordan Rayner. Jordan, you've done so much in your career. You're both an author, a father, a husband, a Christian, and a past executive in tech and, and business. And so you've covered this broad span of what does it look like to be excellent in the workplace? How do you build a company that's excellent? But also, how do you master yourself and what you're called to? His most recent book that I read was called Master of One. And when I read it, what I loved about it, Jordan, is exactly that I had a personal responsibility to take on mastery for myself. And, and that's what I, that was one of my biggest takeaways. So I want to know just a bit of that origin story. What did that look like for you to be like, okay, yeah. I can do great things, yeah. but I really, it's sunk in deep now that I have a responsibility to be a master of something. And in your case, I believe you say it's entrepreneurship, right? Yeah. So in a lot of ways, this Bookmaster One was a bit autobiographical. This is my story. For years, I was the quintessential jack of all trades master. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I think it's even generous to call myself a jack uh, of all <laughs> trades. I even think that's too complimentary for most of us. No, but I would... I was good at a lot of different things, but mm -hmm. there was nothing I could point to and say, yeah, I'm masterful at that, or I'm at least pursuing mastery of that craft. Mm -hmm. I think one of the trademarks of true masters is they never apply the word master to themselves. They always yeah. believe that they're getting better. 
I, but there was nothing I could point to and say, that's what I'm really intentionally developing in my craft. I think for a lot of people, that's okay. It's, yeah. Listen, work is a means of just making enough money to get by, or it's a means of subsidizing my lifestyle. Right. But I just fundamentally disagree with that view of work. I believe work is service to the world. I think work is the means by which, yeah. in the words of a carpenter from Nazareth, we love our neighbor as ourself. And Christian or not, I think you can I think you can resonate with this idea. One of the things I love most about Phil Knight's uh, autobiography about Nike was just how deeply he believed this. That, like business is how we change the world. Business is how we love people. And so once I realized that, once I realized that like work isn't about me, work is about others primarily. And oh, by the way, the path to finding vocational happiness for yourself is in serving other people really well. Then I was like, okay, if that's the case, how can I best serve others through my work? And right. the answer to that is like so painfully obvious. Like I ought to be pursuing world-class mastery or whatever it is that I do. The problem is all of us are doing so many different things that it's just impossible to develop the uh, number of hours of purposeful practice that it takes to get world-class in anything. Everyone's familiar with the 10,000 hour rule. We don't understand it as deeply as we should, but we all understand that it takes a really long time to get really good at something. Yeah. And it's impossible to do that if you're doing five things vocationally at the same right. time. So master of one is a hypothesis mm -hmm. that I put to the test and said, okay, how can we get really great at whatever it is we want to do? And I went out and interviewed some of the world's top performers, looked through all the scientific and academic literature, and found a lot of support for this hypothesis, that it yeah. is a process of pruning and continually focusing on the one thing that God has created us to do in this season of life. I love that. And what I want to get into and what I think is my challenge or yeah. my hope for the end of this interview is, again, your book is incredible. If you haven't gotten uh, this book yet, please go get it. Um, because it's so great at knowing what you can do internally and, and for your own work, your own calling. How do you decide on that? But where I really want to go, and, and I maybe we can even just start there. Let's just yeah. dive into sure, it. Yeah. But this podcast is dedicated to improving, enhancing, and working on company cultures. And so there's this element. We talk about it a lot now. A lot of companies will say Google is the famous one for giving their companies 20% of like fun time, creative time. They're both working on things that benefit the company, but are also part of, I would say, argue mastery. What have you seen also in your executive experience, but now that you've done so much of this mastery work individually, what does it look like for organizations to start to see their entire culture become one where people want to be masters at yeah. their craft, at that job, but also personally in their own lives? Yeah, that's a great question. As you mentioned, I spent my career as an executive. Most, most recently, I ran a 100-person-ish company called Threshold 360, this venture-backed tech startup. I would say three, three things come to mind right off the bat. Number one is just having exceptionally high standards for talent. Because I think when you do that, you naturally cultivate mm. a, a talent pool of people who are world-class or whatever it is they do. They're masterful. I think you can look to Amazon and how Amazon's done this for good case studies. I love the way that Amazon has 
basically checks in their hiring process where people can veto even hiring managers if they don't think a hire is raising the bar on something. We could talk more about that if you want. I think Netflix is a phenomenal model for this. You know, I'm not a huge fan of corporate autobiographies, but No Rules by Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix on their culture, is one of the best business books I've ever read. It just came out about a month ago. It's a yeah, phenomenally accessible wow. playbook for how they think about re- setting really high standards for talent. So that's number one, is just having high standards, communicating right. high standards internally and externally, and also putting in systems in place to ensure that you maintain uh, what Netflix calls high talent density. So that's mm-hmm. number one. Uh, number two, I would say look for ways for your existing team to get more and more focused in their discipline, helping them discern and continually prune away the things that aren't going to be their core thing so that they can focus more time on the thing that there is that they, that is going to be their core thing. And that could include investing in professional development to say, hey, you're in this, you're a programmer and you're great at this, but what you really want to focus on long-term is management we need to invest in your MBA, right? Or whatever uh, it is. They'll be a product manager, whatever it is. So that's mm-hmm. number two, investing in talent, helping them focus on their gifts. The third thing, maybe the most practical thing that we can do with workplace cultures is establish workplace environments that foster deep work. So if you've read Deep Work by oh, Ken Newport, Newport, I talk about in Master of One, there are basically three keys to mastering any craft, right? Number one are apprenticeships, either indirect or direct. Uh, number two is purposeful practice, which I'm going to come back to in a second. Number three is discipline over time. Purposeful yeah. practice, going back to the 10,000 hour rule, right? We all know 10,000 hours. What we don't understand is that it's 10,000 hours of purposeful yeah. practice, which yeah. has four characteristics. I'm not going to list them all, but one of them, It's basically deep work. It's intense focus over long periods of time. And most workplace cultures are antagonistic to deep work. Open floor plans. Just like craziness. Stuff that destroys people's attempts to go deep. And I would argue, science would argue, 90 90 minute blocks of totally focused, uninterrupted time. You got to do it. And so at Threshold 360, the venture I ran previously, uh, we had hard and fast rules to ensure that our team could cultivate depth. For example, if an office door was closed, even if that person didn't have headphones on, you would assume that they were doing deep work and you couldn't knock you couldn't interrupt unless the building was on fire, right? In a more open floor plan, headphones are the rule. If headphones are in, that person's doing deep work and they're not to be disturbed. Now, right. of course, you have to encourage people to find time where their headphones aren't on. You can't have your headphones on all day, but you need to be able to hold yourself away long enough to do deep work. Typically, ideally, for four hours a day, which science continually proves as a max of totally focused work you can do in a day. So hopefully that helps. So number one, setting really high standards for talent. Number two, cultivating in your existing team this idea of mastery, this idea of focus, and putting your money where your mouth is towards the end. And number three, doing everything you can uh, to encourage deep work in an office environment. And I think this is going to take some time. It's a paradigm shift for many organizations who love meetings and yeah. <laughs> love to have Slack open all day long and you're oh, checking I, it and you hear a ping. Can I check on that? Can I yeah. check on that? Maybe the number one thing you can do 
to encourage your team to go deep is send an email to them all telling them that you expect responses to email and Slack messages in a 24-hour business time period. There was a good survey. I, I just read this recently. Something like a third of workers assume, even though their bosses never explicitly said it, assume that their bosses' emails and Slack messages require an immediate response. Now, listen, some bosses in reality do, but most bosses I know don't. So the, the easiest thing you could do literally right now Type an email to your team and say, hey, guys, here are my expectations. Unless I call you because mm -hmm. I urgently need you, assume a 24-hour, 24 business hour response times on, on emails, whatever it is, 24 hours, 12 hours, three hours, whatever, enough time that your team could go deep. That's a game changer. And I, I love you saying that, Jordan. We've talked about that probably four or five times on the <laughs> podcast because I've, I've called this out a lot that a lot of the time leaders actually believe something completely different than what their employees yeah. feel. They believe in their own mind that they're a great leader and that they are open and they're flexible yeah. and they even say it on their employee website. But whether it's from the one level up manager that it feels a little bit more like controlling or you're bringing in baggage with you from another organization you worked yeah. at, without giving that explicit permission, calling yeah. out whatever it is to do with your culture that you believe, yeah. whether it's flexible work from home stuff, whether it's, oh, that's different right now. Before, a lot of people really didn't feel like their manager even trusted them yeah. if they weren't in the office. Yeah. And yet they might have a flexible work policy. And so then people wouldn't use it. They'd be mad at their company, solely building this internal frustration that my company doesn't support me in their hypocritical, even though the leaders were like totally fine with it the whole time. They just yeah. never gave permission or said it explicitly. So I love that you called that out. That's so good. Okay. Switching gears. One thing that I thought was so interesting in your book was that Tim Ferriss life hacking four hour work week thing. And I think I saw an email come through because I'm one of your subscribers as well. And you're going after this, like you're not against Tim Ferriss, but you're throwing caution to what he represents. And I would have to agree with you. And this is the, the take I have. I'd love to hear your side mm -hmm. is like, to me, I don't know why we're so against working, why we're so, why we, why the ultimate dream is never working at all because yeah. it's so much of who we were created for. Yeah. And so I'm just so curious about why did you go after this? What's sort of the new fresh perspective and revelation you have on it? And, and I've worked in tech companies. Sometimes this growth hacking notion becomes so much a part of the culture that it feels awkward when you're like, I actually just like doing really hard work. And I feel like I'm supposed to do that. And I feel like we shouldn't always try to avoid that in our company. How do you maybe recommend somebody go after that in their mindset if that's how they believe? And then also if it's part of the culture or the organizational environment, how do you tackle it there too? Yeah, it's a great question. So I've had a really long uh, love-hate relationship with <laughs> the four-hour work week specifically. And to be clear, the front end, I love Tim Ferriss. I think he's brilliant. I follow all of his stuff. Here's my issue. So let me start with the positive. So I, what I love about the four-hour work week is what everybody loves, right? It, it the, the that way of thinking is just paradigm shifting to enable you to be way more efficient with your time. And I celebrate that. Here's what I hate. And I actually don't think this is Tim's fault. I, I think his tribe is kind of hijacked, has taken this and, and made it their own. It's 
the purpose behind that efficiency. And the cover of the book has a subtle wink at this. It's somebody laying on a beach in a hammock. The idea is, yeah, you work four hours so that you can have leisure for the other hours of your week. And it hits on what you said a minute ago. It hits on this age old idea that work is inherently bad, that work is a meaningless means to an end. It's just a means to make me money so that I can move on to the truly meaningful things in life. And as a Christian, I just don't buy it. So <laughs> if, if any of your listeners have ever read the Bible, pull open. To, this, is what, this is actually one of the things that, that draws me to Christianity. Pull it up to Genesis 1. Christianity is the only religion I've ever heard of that's, that says that God himself worked. Right. Every other religion says that the gods created us to work and toil and labor to serve them. Only Christianity starts with a God who works to serve us. That's a radical idea. And when you get it, you're like, oh my gosh, I want to learn more about this God. All Genesis 1, Genesis 2, before God says that he's loving or just or holy, the only thing we learn about God in Genesis 1 and 2 is that he's creative. And then he works and he rolls up his sleeves and he makes stuff. I love this God. I'm like, I, yeah, I want to know this God better, right? <laughs> and so yeah. that gives great dignity and meaning to all work, right? Now, you know, the Bible goes on to say that we sin, we mess work up, work gets hard, but work was always a part of the original perfect design for the world. And thus it has great dignity, it has great meaning. And the meaning is, service right and by the way like academia is like really catching up to this i talk about this in master one this is great study by this woman named amy rosneski out of yale who found that the number one predictor of somebody describing their work as a calling as opposed to a job or a career is basically how good they are at the job it's the mm -hmm. number of years they have spent practicing the craft the time what's, yeah what's the point right like Passion follows mastery. Passion follows service. It grows with competency over time because that's how God created us. God created to serve us. We create to serve other people. When you understand work like that, man, you're fired up and you want to do as much, as much good work as you can for the good of others. That's what gets me fired up. Right? So that's my issue with the four-hour work week. Again, I love the book. I still read it every few years, but I, I just disagree with the premise that it that it is a means of escaping work. I think work is good. And by the way, I think most people get this. I think, sure, there are hard days at the office. Sure, there are bad bosses that make things difficult for us. But I think all of us at some point in our lives, maybe just once, maybe a dozen times, have walked away from writing a line of code or walked away from writing a chapter of a book and just right. been like, I want this to feel like this forever. It, it just, it feels like magic. You're in the right. zone. I think in those moments, we know deep in our souls, we were designed, we were created to work and that work is inherently good. I love it. So I, I think this connects Skrezneski. Is yeah. that how you say your name? Yeah, Reznesky, yeah. Reznesky. I think this connects one of the quotes from your book. Yeah, mm -hmm. You say, the path to finding work we love starts with, seeking work through which we can love others. If you're looking for work, you can be passionate about over a long period of time. Spend less time worrying about your pre-existing passions and much more time figuring out which work you're disproportionately gifted at. 
And to me, this sort of connects to one of my favorite Bible verses, actually. I think it's Hebrews 10, 24. Let me look it up. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And so it's this like element of let's like think of ways to love people. And that actually just includes work. Let's not beat around the bush that they're together. Yeah. And so I want to know a little bit of like, when I read that quote out, as you think back to writing it, what were you thinking in that moment? How, how did you come up yeah. with this idea? What did yeah. that where did it come from? Well, I didn't come up with it, right? I mean, this, <laughs> this, this is came up through studying God's word, talking to people who are world-class at what they do and just looking at the data, right? Like, yeah millennials i'm a millennial i'm assuming you're a millennial gen z whatever we've all grown up and have heard a pretty unifying voice from all the adults in our lives about work and career it's do whatever makes you happy do what you love to do follow your passions follow your dreams and this advice is garbage like millennials we more than any generation before us we have had more opportunity to do what we love and according right. to Gallup, we're the least happy generation ever at work. Like, it just doesn't work. This follow your passion strategy, like the data just like bears out. It's just not mm-hmm. effective. Now, there has to be some symbol. There has to be a seedling of passion there to even right. get you going down a particular path. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll admit that the data is really clear about that. But passion isn't the only thing. It's not the primary thing. What you mm-hmm. should be looking for early in your career is like, what are you disproportionately good at because over time sustainable satisfaction in your work comes with getting really good at what you do angela duckworth talks a lot about this in grit right she talks about her own story about how you know she used to love being this like promising beginner because it's fun like you can't screw up the bar set so low for you so everyone thinks you're great when you do just marginally well in your job but what's way more satisfying than being that beginner is being a world-class master of your craft mm-hmm. and that just takes years and years of grit and hard work so that that's what was going through my mind when i wrote those words well and i love that too because i will admit that i am one of those sort of jack of all trades and people look at me and they can they often will celebrate a jack of all trades yes. in fact often i would say that the popular term now is you're a renaissance man yes or a yes. renaissance yes. woman and it's this is really interesting like how did okay, it feels like you have something to say i, so I really want to hear go for it i do <laughs> and i would celebrate it too I don't have a pro- I, I'm a jack of all trades. I don't have a problem being described as a jack of all trades. I have a huge problem being described as a master of none. And there's a difference. I think, in my experience, being a jack of all trades is the inevitable byproduct of discerning what you're going to go big on vocationally. And so and I talk about this in the book. I, I, in fact, I think we ask people way too early in their careers, as early as college and high school, to choose what their one thing is going to be. That's crazy. In order to make an educated decision to say, hey, this is the thing I'm going to spend five, 10 years mastering, you got to try a lot of stuff first. And I think in that process of experimentation and trying a bunch of things, you just inevitably become a jack or jill of all trades. So I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is when we stay content there and say, I'm a jack of all trades and I'm just going to do that forever. If we believe our work is service, right? Mm-hmm. Who are you going to hire, right? The, the person that's a jack of all trades they, to, do your, to do your heart surgery. You want the person who's been doing that for 10 years, for 20 years. That's the only thing they've ever been doing, right? Why would we expect anything less from our own work? That's what I'm getting at here. It's okay being a Jack or Joe of all trades, but at some point, let's pick something to really go. Because I, are you a Hamilton fan by chance? Love it. Love so it. one of my favorite quotes in Master of One 
came from Lin-Manuel Miranda, the, the writer of Hamilton. And he's been interviewed on 60 Minutes and the interviewer was like, hey, you went to school with all these like really talented kids. Like, why are we sitting here talking to you than like one of your colleagues from like grade school? And his answer was master of one. His answer was because at some point all these kids were doing musical theater and you know drama and acting for commercials, whatever. And I just said, it's musical theater, period, full stop. And that was it. That was it, right? It's such a simple answer to one of the greatest artists ever from one of the greatest artists ever. I think there's so much wisdom there. I love it. Okay, I do want to go back to something that you talked about in one of your podcast episodes. Mm -hmm. yeah. You were interviewing Deanne Turner, and yeah. I, she's just a heroine of mine. She's brilliant. And yeah. so I think she was the vice president of talent and HR at, yeah. at Chick-fil-A. Yeah. And, and you threw in that you really think about GPA. And I had a, I, to be honest, Jordan, I really didn't know what I felt about when I heard you say that. I've got so much feedback on this. Uh, Have you? So oh, really? Okay, it's interesting. And again, some of the work that I do also springs into the diversity and inclusion category. And, and this is something that we're now having more and more discussions about. Because, for example, it's not always, but it's more common that someone that is a Black person will go through university and not always get as good of grades because financially they may have been having two jobs to support their family this is less common in caucasian populations yes. it's not a universal truth it's just the commonalities between them and for example if we want to focus which i do on diversity and inclusion i'm a half black man all of these things how do we get around this because i don't want to discredit people that worked really yeah. hard in university there's something to be said about it but how do we not overemphasize grades yeah. or gpa and or even just have that as a filter. How do we still have it as a filter? We still care about it, but we still make room and space and openness to someone that comes to us with a different story. How do you yeah. deal with that? It's a great question. So first, let me re-articulate what I said on the podcast for the good of those listening. <laughs> and then I'll come back to your question because I think it's a terrific question that I'm thinking a lot about. So what I said on the podcast was in my experience, and by the way, this has only proved increasingly true since that since I recorded that okay. podcast episode. GPA is the best indicator of success in the workplace. It's not perfect. There's no perfect indicator, but put that up against any other metric, Myers-Briggs scores, <laughs> yeah. SAT scores, whatever. GPA is it for me. Because and I think it's because it is a good measure of both grit and smarts, right? Like, I don't care about that. SAT scores just show me that you're smart and you know how to take a test. Like, who cares? That does me no good as an employer. But GPA, yeah, you got to work hard at that. But like I and said- over a sustained period. Over a sustained period of time. Right. Like I said, though, there's no perfect indicator. And I do think uh, that one of the, that this shows up disproportionately in people of different backgrounds than myself. And so- I think the answer here, and this is something I do, I think we're really good about this at Jordan Rayner and Company and at Threshold 360, my, my current employer, where we had a, a pretty diverse workforce. you got to look at the whole picture. And this is what Deanne was saying, right? If you've got a 3.8 and a 3.5 that you're looking at, but the 3.5 worked full-time all the way throughout college to support themselves, yeah, that's probably who I'm picking. Is Again, it's not perfect, but... I love it. And I get that it's an unpopular opinion, but yeah, I would encourage people to start looking for it and seeing how it bears out. But if you do it, 
you do have to be more intentional about digging in and hearing the full story of somebody's background right. if you care about diversity and inclusion in the workforce, which we care very deeply about at Jordan Rainer and Company. And I think this comes back to even what we were talking a little bit earlier about getting uh, sort of clear, let's say when yeah. we were talking earlier about your team and giving people permission to do things. This is something that I've, I'm curious if you're seeing or you've talked about this in the company culture space and the hiring space. We're seeing that we have a lot of work to do and we've really not changed for a long time. Yeah. So even in this example, as if I put my strategist culture hat on, I would just say if GPA is something you do care about, you're realizing Jordan is wise and you want to maybe take his advice. I would just say we at this company have a filter. We really like GPA. We think it means a lot. But we also want you to tell us if yours isn't so great, submit your story. Yeah. Tell us that. Ask them to do the work to show why it isn't maybe up to snuff in your standards, but don't cut people out. Give them a way to still include themselves in so that you also know what's coming in. And then you're not just totally basing it on this. And then you also are also avoiding like getting called out for it getting in the future and, and, discrimination and, or whatever. And getting the best candidate. So that's terrific advice. I love that. So to finish off, I wanted to talk about something I'm really passionate about is Again, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we usually focus on race as the main thing. The secondary thing, and especially this year, which is important. It's amazing. I don't think we need to stop talking about it. We have a yeah. lot of work to do. We need to talk a lot more about it. But one thing that's interesting to me that is actually much more rare in the discussion of DEI, all of this category, is actually faith. And it is a lot of what people bring. I've said in a previous podcast episode that to me, it's so funny how the amount of times I've worked with executives and they say, oh my gosh, we encourage everyone to bring their full self to work. And then you go and you like look at people's lives. And even, even if you're not a believer in God, a lot of people say, yeah, we're made up of body, soul, and spirit sort of thing. Right. And so then you're like, okay, if that's the formula for what makes somebody a full self, we basically only allow someone to show up with their body. So now you're actually not bringing your whole self to work. You're bringing a third. And maybe I'm being a bit intense with that. But there's something to be said about, can we really learn how to celebrate and include and be diverse if we don't really talk about people's faith and give it a, a place in the workplace? So I'm curious, what's, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. How do you think it starts to be something that we do talk about? How do we stop to, especially, I'm not trying to say that Christians are being persecuted in any way, shape or form. I've, people get beheaded. That's persecution. Yeah. But there is this element of if you're a Christian and you're in the workplace and you share about it, people just instantly assume a lot of things about you. How do we start to change that narrative and bring it into the company culture, yeah. wonderful world of diversity and inclusion? It's a great question. I'm so glad you're thinking deeply uh, about this. Number one, you can make the topic more relevant if you become more relevant to your colleagues. And the way you do that is just get great at what you do. And I, I talk about this in Master of One. In my experience and the experience of plenty of people I've interviewed about this, the better you are at what you do, the way more open people are to hearing about why you do what you do. But nobody's going to care unless you're great at what you do. That's foundational. I talk about this in the book. The fundamental ministry, I believe, as a Christian is not to share my faith with my colleagues as much as I'd like to do that. My fundamental ministry is the ministry of excellence, of just serving them 
as a leader serving my team well, as an employee, if I'm an employee serving my employer, that's foundational. And without that, yeah, I just don't think anyone really cares what you have to say within those four walls. And I, I, I think that's somewhat uh, understandable. I think that's completely understandable. So that's what I would say first. Secondly, listen, I think it's wonderful that we are having more conversations like this because I think the natural evolution of these conversations comes around to, hey, we've got to be talking about this at work because this is an issue of diversity and, and inclusion, right? So I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I want to see more people talking about this. And listen, I think we if we really care about people putting their best foot forward at our workplace. You can't extract the why from what people are doing. It's just, and, and for so many people, what's driving them in their life, what's driving them in their work is their faith, whatever that faith is. And those different perspectives are incredibly valuable, right? To, to the employer, to relationships with coworkers, I think we got to be fostering environments where it's comfort comfortable to have what traditionally have been very uncomfortable conversations. But hey, listen, traditionally we said, hey, don't talk about politics and religion. More and more, <laughs> we're talking about politics, so we might as well be talking about religion and whatever is driving our why. I love it, Jordan. That's such a great place to end. Thank you so much. This has been an incredible privilege. And be sure to uh, check out Jordan's book, resources, website. All the links will be included in the podcast when it's fully released. Jordan, I also wanted to ask you, I know one other resource that my audience I think would be interested in is that you talk about being an author and not having a big audience. Yeah. Do you have anything for that right now? Or is that coming out or what's up with that? Yeah, we just released it actually. So okay, great. I just announced, I signed a five book deal with Penguin Random House, the world's largest publisher, which Five book deals are somewhat unheard of, I'm finding out from other authors. I'm getting other authors texting me back, what? Like, where, where do I go to get these five book deals? And uh, what's crazy, though, is my first traditionally published book, this book behind me called To Create, when I signed the deal for that, I had no platform, no podcast, no email list, no endorsements, nothing. And if, if you're listening to this podcast and you've seriously thought about writing a book before, you probably do some quick research and are discouraged because everybody tells you you have to have a million email addresses and that's just not true. And we just launched a course called How to Land a Book Deal with No Platform. It's gotten phenomenal reviews from our students. I'm so happy everybody who's taken it has given a five out of five star rating and we're really proud of it. So yeah, if you go to access.jordanrainer.com or just the main jordanrainer.com homepage, you can find links to it. But yeah, we're having a lot of fun with that. Fabulous. God bless you, man. And thanks for having me. You bet. That's it. That's all, folks. So thankful to you for being here today. I really just appreciate you taking this time to hang out, to learn, to grow together. We all have so much work to do on ourselves, and doing it collectively is awesome. So I have a big ask of you. Would you head over to iTunes and give me a really honest review. I would love to hear your thoughts. 
it does help the podcast get in front of way more people. Um, five stars is always great, but if you're not feeling it, like let me know. I want to, you know, always improve as well. Um, but I so appreciate your feedback. Um, and also connect with me on LinkedIn. You can find me at Tynan Allen and I love to hang out there. It's just so much fun to connect with people, share more content there. I post a lot on that platform and love to connect with other professionals in the company culture, HR, and diversity, equity, and inclusion space. Make sure you check out Jordan's new book, Redeeming Your Time. And uh, if you're listening to this episode before October 19th, 2019, you should get the pre-order of Jordan's book so that you can enter yourself in at jordanrainer.com to win a trip to Israel for free. All right. Be blessed. Bye.